Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the latest episode of Rossafari Zoo News. You know the deal by now. This is going to be an episode all about the latest in the world of zoos, conservation, aquariums, animals, all that good stuff. And hey, if you happen to see any interesting zoo newsworthy stories that you want to send my way, you can tag me in them on Facebook or Instagram at Rossafari or send me a link, rossafaripod at gmail.com. And with that said, I've got a lot of stories this week, so I'm going to cut this intro short and let's get right to it. All right, and we start this week off with another list of the top zoos in the country. Now, this one was decided a little differently. This is from alwayspets.com, and they looked at the top 50 zoos in the country based on their TripAdvisor rating. Uh, I think this is a slightly better way than just having people randomly vote for whatever zoo they like, like USA Today did. Um, but it also has the problem that some of the more famous, more popular zoos have also been attacked online by anti-captivity organizations such as PETA. And so they end up with worse reviews because they're better and more popular and it all gets very weird. It's a really cool article, though, that's definitely worth Googling, not only because you will see their opinion of the top 50 zoos, but they break down each zoo by saying, here's the bottom line about it, here's what to expect, and and kind of just giving an overview of each place, the location, when it opens, stuff like that. So it's kind of a nice little resource to have as a, as a zoo fan. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole list now, but I will tell you that the top 10 zoos, according to alwayspets.com are as follows. Number 10, the San Diego Zoo. Number 9, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Coming in at number 8, we have the Living Desert Zoo and Gardens, which I just adore. Number 7 is the Wilds and Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. They are both listed at the same thing, even though they're different facilities, but hey, they're owned by the same place. It's cool. Number six, Brevard Zoo in Florida. I am going to be going there soon and have been there before, and it is amazing. Number five, the Out of Africa Wildlife Park, which is located in Arizona. Number four is Safari West in Santa Rosa, California. Number three, the Sonora Desert Museum in Tucson, Arizona. Number two, Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium, one of the biggest and most impressive facilities I've ever been to. And then number one, 
is the St. Louis Zoo in St. Louis, Missouri. And, you know, I have to say that while I don't agree with the list entirely and may one day even put together my own list, um, man, I love the St. Louis Zoo. It is, it's a really cool place. It's, it's really special. It's where I first discovered um, black-breasted leaf turtles, one of my favorite turtle species. Yeah, there's that F word that I always say, favorite. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a really cool zoo and it's nice to see it topping a list that, uh, that I don't, know that it always would. As a matter of fact, for many years before I got to some of the other crazier, bigger facilities that I've been to, anytime anybody asked me what my favorite zoo was, I would answer with St. Louis Zoo. Anyway, you can check out the entire list of the top 50 zoos at uh, allpets.com. Just as a quick heads up though, it's a really annoying page with a ton of ads and a real slow loading time. Still, cool article. Now for some sad news out of one of my favorite places. The Georgia Aquarium has announced the humane euthanasia of their remaining female whale shark, Alice. This is the second female whale shark there to pass away in the last few years, and uh, it was their only remaining female. In all of my experiences going to aquariums and zoos around the country, I have never had my breath taken away as completely as when I walked into the Georgia Aquarium for the first time and saw four whale sharks and four manta rays along with the sea turtle and a bunch of other amazing fish swimming over my head and, and in their amazing aquarium. It's, it's a sight to behold, and it, it still will be with two whale sharks and the four manta rays. As many of you know, there's a lot of debate about keeping large animals and especially large water-based animals such as orcas and even dolphins and, of course, whale sharks in captivity. Uh, I think it's really cool and worth mentioning that um, the four whale sharks that came to the Georgia Aquarium were all rescued from um, uh, seafood markets in Taiwan and would have died immediately had they not been saved and then brought to a facility like the Georgia Aquarium. So it's an interesting and ongoing experiment to keep these animals in captivity. And I think it's it's definitely better to have gotten that lease on life and to have the incredible lives that they had, um, you know, instead of being turned into seafood. It's definitely an incredibly complex topic and one that warrants debate and discussion as, as long as it's done with a scientific bent and not just based on feelings or emotions. But for me, that comes at a later date. Today, I'm just going to be mourning the loss of Alice, one of the most amazing and beautiful creatures I've ever gotten to lay my eyes on. Sending condolences and love to the uh, entire staff at the Georgia Aquarium and to everyone who has ever been there and been amazed by Alice and the other whale sharks. But enough being sad, let's move on to some happier zoo conservation news. Uh, the Vancouver Island marmot is Canada's most endangered mammal and actually one of the most critically endangered animals in the world. Back in 2003, only 30 individuals were left in the wild, and uh, that is why the captive breeding program for this species was created at the Toronto Zoo. And this year, the zoo was excited to announce the births of six Vancouver Island marmot pups. 
The Marmot Recovery Program at the Toronto Zoo is one of those things that we talk about all the time on this podcast. These are not animals that you can go to the zoo and see. They are kept off exhibit, they are given the best care, and they are just allowed to live their lives in the best way to help them breed and then reintroduce those pups into the wild. The six pups born at the zoo this year will either be introduced into the wild when they get a little bit older or will be kept at the zoo to continue the breeding program there. To date, 165 marmot pups have been born and raised at the zoo, with over 140 of them being released into the wild. This, plus other conservation efforts around the species, have led the population to grow from, as I mentioned, 30 in 2003 to somewhere between two and 300 in the wild today. Yay, behind-the-scenes conservation efforts at zoos. Oh, and speaking of those efforts and cool births, the National Zoo, in collaboration with the World Wildlife Fund, uh, Defenders, and um, the Assinboine and Gross Venture Tribes, have been working on a reintroduction program for swift foxes. Although the species itself is not endangered and is actually of least concern, certain local populations have been completely decimated by human involvement, including those in Montana. This week, the program got to announce something really cool. For the first time in over 50 years, swift fox pups have been born in Montana. This is a huge conservation success story. And I just love that it's uh, from the Smithsonian's National Zoo, which is in Washington, D.C., even though the actual reintroduction is taking place in Montana. It is amazing how different communities come together to help different animals. So do you all remember that a couple weeks ago, I was talking about the fact that a lot of people are exhibiting extra bad behavior now that zoos have reopened after their long COVID hiatus? Well, back in October, a 31-year-old man out in California actually kidnapped a ringtail lemur from its exhibit at the San Francisco Zoo. The lemur, named Maki, is fine and was found hungry, dehydrated, and agitated shortly after the kidnapping when it was left at a playground. I hate humans. But the good news here is that the zoo did decide to press charges, and on Monday, the alleged lemur napper was arraigned in district court. He faces up to $50,000 in fines and possibly a year in prison. To date, the man has not admitted guilt and, because of that, has also not admitted why he did it. Black market pet trade? Who knows? It's hard to say. Um, but here's some evergreen advice for, for this gentleman and anyone else listening. Don't take animals from zoos. Look, if I can manage to go to a couple zoos a week and have never kidnapped a red panda, tree kangaroo, binturong, or turtle, y'all can leave the lemurs where they lie. Ueno Zoological Park in Tokyo, Japan, is celebrating the birth of a pair of giant panda twins. Mother Shinshin and Father Riri have mated before, but it has been four years since their last partnering, and this is the first time that they have given birth to twins. This is not only exciting because giant pandas are vulnerable and um, every birth really helps the species continue to grow. 
but also because giant panda twins are actually incredibly rare. Normally, there's just one baby per coupling. Given that uh, giant pandas don't mate very readily and are only in heat for an incredibly small amount of time, uh, there's already like a lot of biological reasons that the population grows slowly, if at all. So hearing about a twin birth at a zoo is fabulous. Yay, pandas, even if they are the imposter bear kind. A dangerous double heat wave has invaded the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest, which is, you know, not only bad for humans and stuff, but can make things challenging for zoos. Many zoos have a bunch of really cool ways to help their animals cool down. These can include misters and even hidden air conditioning units on exhibit, but often in places where the animal can't be seen by the folks going to the zoo because, well... You can't really air condition the outside all that well. So if you are going to a zoo in one of these areas, please keep in mind that you may not see nearly the number of animals that you normally would because they will have access to their cooler indoor areas and uh, deserve the chance to be in them if that's what they want to do. Also, for those of you that are curious about how this works, just a couple random facts that I know. Um, some zoos come up with a plan for each individual animal. One of my favorites, obviously, are red pandas. Y'all know that. And I know a couple of red pandas in this world that um, seem to not thermoregulate as well as they should. And uh, what I mean when I say that is that when it's really too hot for them to be comfortable, they will purposely stay outside and pant and run around and not take care of themselves and uh, can actually risk heat stroke and stuff. As such, the vets and keepers there come up with plans saying that at a certain temperature, the outdoor access is actually limited for these animals. Obviously, this is to ensure the health and welfare of the animal in question, and if that means that you don't get to see them, well, too darn bad. I mention this because I'm already seeing people complaining about it online, and it just drives me crazy. What has made me happy, however, is seeing how many keepers and other zoo staff at these facilities have been reaching out to the keepers at zoos in warmer areas like Zoo Miami and the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans to get hints on exactly the best ways to help keep cooler climate animals comfortable in a heat wave. This type of collaboration is so beautiful to see, and the way that keepers at these zoos step up to help the people who are facing the heat wave touches my heart. Zoo staffs, y'all are truly some of the best people I have ever met. And speaking of really cool people, I wanted to take the last story of Zoo News here to just share something that I've been thinking about. I've been going to a lot of zoos lately, and it is the summer, and that means it is time for Zoo Camp. Zoo camps are amazing, and I wish I had something like that when I was a kid. Uh, campers go to the zoo for the day um, all week, or sometimes they're multi-week, and they get to meet animals and learn about zookeeping and learn about protecting the environment, and there's always a really good component focused on wildlife conservation in the wild, in situ conservation, okay? This is amazing. So if you are a parent or you're a child and uh, you, you want to look into this further, I highly recommend checking out the zoo camp situation at your local zoo. And for all of you who are zoo campers, 
y'all are the coolest kids out of all the kids. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Go to zoo camp, y'all. Sorry, adults, you're not allowed. I know because I asked. And now... Stereotypical animal podcast theme song. Here to bring you to conservation news. For our first story in conservation news, we turn to Rossafari senior toy correspondent, Miles Edward Rossi. Take it away, Miles. Lego announced they have made their first truck from recycled plastics to make more sustainable toys. They have been trying to do this for three years. I love Lego Mario. It can read the barcodes and... It can send stuff and make all kinds of noises, and you can make your own Super Mario level. I made this fun Lego town where you can do whatever you want with Legos, and there's a basketball hoop and everything you just need. So it's awesome. With Legos! All right. Thank you, Miles. Now, we talk a lot about citizen scientists on this podcast. And one of the best examples of a community of citizen scientists is the birding community. In fact, it was birders in Maumee Bay State Park in Ohio who first recognized that a pair of piping plovers were mating and then laying eggs on the beach. The birders contacted Black Swamp Bird Observatory, a local nonprofit focused on combining research and education for bird conservation, who then reached out to other conservation organizations and the Department of Fish and Wildlife to make them aware of this incredible finding. Turns out the birds in question, named Nish and Nelly, are actually Ohio's first nesting piping plovers in 83 years. Conservationists quickly swung into motion and set up a area of protection around the nest to ensure that the eggs will be given every chance to hatch. The call was put out to find volunteer monitors to watch the nest both to protect it and to see what happens with the eggs, and the birding community responded hugely with over 100 people signing up to take multiple shifts to watch the nest site. It's amazing to see so many people rally together around four little eggs. Back in the 80s, the Great Lakes population of piping plovers was down to under 20 mating pairs. However, thanks to conservation efforts, that number is currently estimated to be around 60 to 80 pairs and continuing to grow. Nish and Nelly demonstrate that not only is the population growing, but also starting to expand back out into some of its former range where it has not been seen in a long time. Hopefully, this is a trend that continues. Something made even more likely by our amazing birding community. And speaking of science, new developments in Brazil are going to be helping combat the illegal wildlife trade. In many countries, there is a problem with fighting the wildlife trade. Namely, that the laws in those countries allow for captive-bred animals to be sold, but not for the same animals to be sold if they came from the wild. This presents a major problem, though, as anybody caught with wild-caught animals can just claim that they were captive-bred, and it's pretty hard to prove whether or not that is the case. The technique of passing off 
wild-caught animals as captive bred is called warming, and it is actually a major issue in Brazil. However, the state branch of the federal police in the Amazonas state in Brazil have started using an isotope ratio mass spectrometer to detect cases of warming. Without going into too much detail here, basically what this does is it allows the police to look at the captured animal and determine the location from which it came. That includes labs or the wilderness. By using the tool to analyze the claws and furs of mammals uh, and any keratin that is found, they can figure out exactly where the animal came from, which is pretty cool. The tool and training for its use did not come cheap, with the police force investing over 514,000 American dollars into it. However, already $494,000 have come in from fines collected from environmental violators, so it's going to pay for itself pretty quickly. I love seeing tech advances being used for conservation, and I also have to tell you that I stumbled over the word spectrometer way too many times while recording this episode. Spectrometer, it's not hard, but I digress. For years, it has been believed that African elephants are one species, but with two genetically different subspecies. However, scientists have now determined that the two subspecies are actually each their own species. So currently, there is a forest African elephant species and a savanna African elephant species. As I mentioned, when this topic came up with red pandas being considered two species now instead of two subspecies, this doesn't make a huge difference in the world, especially to the elephants who don't really give a crap. However, where it is important is in the conservation message. You can now take a population study and say that there are X number of each of these species, which may make them more endangered than we already thought they were and raise awareness even more and, and then help to save them even more. It's going to be real interesting to follow taxonomy over the next couple of decades as our ability to analyze the DNA of different species continues to get better and more labs become interested in doing so. Oh, and speaking of African elephants, there is currently an African elephant baby boom taking place in Kenya. In fact, the elephant population there has more than doubled in the last 30 years from about 16,000 individuals in 1989 to almost 35,000 individuals back in 2019, the last time a survey was completed. While that growth over the last 30 years is incredible, it's also worth noting that just in the last couple of years, a huge baby boom has occurred. This is being attributed to both really good anti-poaching efforts that have gone into play in the last couple of years, and also an increase in rains in the area. Here's hoping that the two species of African elephants continue to rebound so well. Now, on this podcast, we often talk about how trying to save one animal can end up saving other animals in the area, something known as being an umbrella species, right? Okay, well, this next story is a great example of just that. Over in Vietnam, 110 camera traps were set up in the Phong Dien Nature Reserve. The idea was that they were going to hopefully capture images of Edwards pheasants, a species that is believed to possibly have gone extinct with no live sightings happening since 1996. 
while the camera traps did not catch any evidence of Edward's pheasants existing in the nature reserve, boy, did they catch a lot of other cool stuff. A rare species of muntjac deer, a cool species of striped rabbit, and a species of palm civet, along with 30 other bird species that are known to be endangered, were all seen on these camera traps. This is huge because... Even though camera traps are really cool, they're actually not very effective. First of all, they only cover a small area of land. Second of all, they can malfunction or get flooded or break or have their batteries die. And also, captured images can be incredibly blurry and hard to make out. Even though 110 camera traps sounds like a lot, you have to realize that it is on a protected land that covers over 100,000 acres. So to see that many cool endangered species on such a small number of camera traps is incredible. It is expected that this is going to put a lot more focus from the conservation world onto the Fongdian Reserve and also bring in a lot more money to conserve these specimens of the species that are endangered and were discovered there. Whether Edward's pheasants are found on the reserve or not, it's nice to know that the work being done to preserve that species, should it still exist, will also have a huge impact on other endangered species in the area. In other news... Over in India, a male tiger is breaking gender norms. Normally, a male tiger will leave immediately after mating, leaving the female to raise tiger cubs. However, a different story is playing out in the Pana Tiger Reserve in India. On May 15th, the mother of four tiger cubs in the reserve passed away from a prolonged illness. Normally, this would be the end of the cubs unless they had gotten wise enough and tigery enough to survive, which these four have not. However, a male tiger in the area seems to have decided to foster the cubs. He rarely leaves them alone for more than a day or two and even goes out and hunts wild game that he then brings back to the cubs' territory and allows them to eat it. In some cases, such as a cow that he killed, he literally didn't eat any of it himself, instead taking it all back for the cubs to enjoy. Based on studies of camera traps and observing them from a distance, it appears that all four cubs are still very healthy, very playful, and don't even seem all that stressed. Their new foster father has stepped up in a major way and is giving these four cubs an amazing chance to live a normal, healthy life. Meanwhile, a woman in Thailand found an unexpected visitor in her house in the middle of the night recently. A wild Asian elephant. Videos of the elephant in question show that the elephant extended its trunk and went through cupboards and drawers, knocking over dishes. At one point, it even picked up a plastic bag using its trunk and placed it in its mouth. Which, again, just goes to show you how absolutely horrible plastic bags are. We think about them in the ocean, but hey, it can also happen with invading elephants into your home. Which I guess isn't really a threat that most people face, but um, is, is one for some people. The belief is that the elephant was looking for foods, and particularly salt or salty foods, because it was looking to restore minerals that it needed. 
Man, I'm glad I don't live in an area with elephants because I eat all the salt and uh, my house would definitely be the first one raided. I have all kinds of cool artisanal salts and stuff. It's kind of ridiculous. Anyway, while I am trying to keep this story light, it does also illustrate a huge issue that is, is occurring with elephants right now. Human-animal conflict is a real problem. We've talked about it on the podcast a lot, but it's important to remember as we sit in our comfy chairs in the United States or wherever you may be listening, that, um, you know, conserving animals includes educating the people in their home range and also making them truly fall in love with the species so that they want to protect the animal that comes crashing through their wall and destroying their kitchen on a quest for salt. Because all joking aside, I cannot even imagine the terror of having that large and lethal of an animal break into your own home. The bones of a new rhino species dating back 26.5 million years have been found in the Gansu province of northwestern China. This new species is considered one of the largest land mammals that ever lived. The skulls and legs of a giant rhino are longer than those of all reported land mammals. Along with being a new species, it's also a really well-preserved fossil, with the entire skull being completely preserved. It is said to have a deeper nasal cavity than other giant rhinoceros species and also have a slender skull, short nose trunk, and long neck. This is helping further our understanding of extinction because to support an animal that size, there must have been a lot of vegetation in the area, and now there is not nearly that much in the same area. So um, the, the belief is that there was a whole diversification of rhinos and other mammal groups millions of years ago, but that since then, the Earth's climate has changed and a lot of these groups have disappeared, which also brings us to the point of, hey, advancing climate change like humans are doing is only going to advance that happening and then wipe out more species. Here's further proof of the problem with climate change. And here are your animal holidays for the week brought to you by the peppermint narwhal calendar that they sent me because they are awesome. All right, so it is July, y'all, and um, that means that it is Wild About Wildlife Month, National Bison Month, and Plastic Free July as well. Thursday the 1st is International Polychaete Day. Friday the 2nd is World Porcupine Day. Saturday the 3rd is World Meerkat Day. And then Sunday the 4th, at least in America, is Independence Day, which... Uh, is also known as, this sucks if you have a dog that's afraid of thunder and fireworks and stuff day. So uh, try to remember to uh, maybe not set off so many fireworks and, and think about our four-legged friends. And also, um, if you do have a dog that is afraid of those things, be aware that Sunday the 4th is going to be that day. All right, so that's going to do it for Zoo News this week. Thank you to Elizabeth Dunlevy, Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross, Dr. Natalie Taco, Stephen Rossi, and Kim Cooley for contributing articles to this week's episode of Zoo News. 
Remember, you can also do that and then get to hear your name at the end of the podcast, just like all of these cool people did, by emailing me links, rossafaripod at gmail.com, or messaging me or tagging me in them on, on Instagram and Facebook at rossafari. And uh, hey, remember, friends, Newsy Credits Backwards is Yaswin Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.